Common Knowledge Podcast, just a man doing the best he can with what he got. Coming fresh off of Comic-Con. That's right, Comic-Con Tokyo. Taking pictures with multiple geeks. Never have a more pronounced group of geeks getting together since the Gathering of the Juggalos Comic-Con. And I'm coming fresh off that. And here to talk to me about comics and everything entertainment, one of the local Common Knowledge Podcast entertainment experts and host of the podcast, Diverse Distractions, Daniel Brandon. How you doing, brother man? I'm doing pretty good. It's good to be back on. Thanks for having me, as always. And I was good that I couldn't join you at Comic-Con, but I had... I had yeah, and I had the <laughs> shittiest reaction to a vaccine. Trying to be responsible. That's your fault. Being responsible. I'm not, not going to go all anti-vax, but I am going to say I'm not sure that I'm going to be taking any more vaccines because I've had COVID at this point and I've had the vaccines and this vaccine did me in worse than COVID at this point. So I'm wondering if I've got a reaction to it or I might try a different one next time because I've tried a few different ones and some of them <laughs> didn't hit me like that. But I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to need to talk to a doctor before I agree to do it again because this this one wrecked me. Yeah, I stopped at three. I'm not doing more than three. I'm yeah, I, I just did it as a factor of the, you know, my, my day job at the moment is working mm. with children. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, did do have to kind of take responsibility for their health as well. So I, I did, but uh, it was a rough ride and I missed Comic-Con. Have you been to Comic-Con before? No, I've never been to Tokyo Comic-Con. I've never been to the big Comic-Con in America. How about Britain? I have... Of course, I'm a massive nerd. Of course, I've been, I was going to Comic Cons back when we called them Comic Marts, you know? They were like little flea markets for comics, um, had all the imported American comics. They were the conventions. You'd sometimes have comic writers, uh, artists. I met Dave Prowse at once, once. And this is one thing that, um, when you initially brought up Comic-Con to me last week, that was before you knew you could actually get a ticket for me. I was Sorry. looking at the prices and it was like, what would it be in dollars? It'd be about $50 almost for about a ticket. About $50, yes. Just for the ticket. And then if you wanted to meet, to get a photo with Hayden Christensen, $500. Get his signature, $500 fucking dollars. I met Dave Prowse at a Comic Mart when I was a kid, probably in the 90s, this was. So this is Dave Prowse, for anyone who doesn't know, was the man in the suit of the, ori- the original Darth Vader. Not the voice, the man in the suit. That was Dave Prowse. I met him and I got his signature for five pounds. That was about probably eight dollars. <laughs> Inflation, man. And I thought that was expensive at the time. I thought it was crazy that he was like charging per autograph at the time. That was the world we lived in. 30 years ago, and now here we are paying $500 to get a selfie with Hayden Christensen. Hey, man, like, yesterday's what? price, not today's price, man. It's called free market capitalism. His line was so empty at Comic-Con, by the way. Really? <laughs> it, was, it, it was dead as empty. You know, honestly, in the list of people who were going to be in Comic-Con, the headliners, the person who got the most people in his line was uh, Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown. I'm not surprised because, I mean, let's face it. The reality is as well, the last time, a few years ago, I think the last Comic-Con probably before the pandemic and all that, I think Stanley actually came to that one or was it the one before? And obviously 
that's the guy that's going to get the line. The guy that's not going to make that trip to Japan for work again. Mm-hmm. Like Christopher Lloyd, there's a good chance that... No, I'm not saying I, I wish him all the best health in the world. But, but I, Father Time undefeated. But also, I'm well, I mean, that is one thing that is inevitably true. But all good health aside, a man his age is not going to want to tour the world doing meet and greets for many more years. <laughs> He's going to want to, you know, after he... Because right now they've just released that um, Doc and Marty Back to the Future clothing line and right. merch line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm sure that's a big part of why he's out there at the moment doing these meet and greets because he wants to promote this line that he's just released. Um, that'll see him and probably all of his family through the rest of their days. Um, but I don't think he's going to be wanting to do these kind of t- international tours again. So of course he's going to be the guy you're going to line up for. We all got a finite amount of time, right? And you're right. He's getting old. He's, I think it was like, it has to be 80, right? At least. Like, like oh, 70, at least. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's, I mean, Samuel Jackson's apparently 75. So right. Christopher Lloyd was, you know, old when Samuel Jackson was young. So like, <laughs> but I mean, I, I feel like Christopher Lloyd, when you go back and watch the Back to the Future movies now, he wasn't that old, he was but not. somehow he still, he looked old when he was young. He's one of those guys. I don't think he was ever young. It's a distortion thing, right? Because uh, me personally right now, I don't consider myself old and I'm in my 40s. We're both in our 40s, right? Mm-hmm. I don't consider myself old. But when I speak to teenagers, oh, I'm the oldest thing walking. I am just like ancient. Listen to this. Beverly Hills Cop. Think of the two cops. Um, who was the, the two, sidekick, two sidekick cops? One of them that was not Judge Reinhold. Who was the other guy? So there was Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, and there was one more cop in it, right? He was like 36, 37 when he... Oh, John Astor. Yeah. He was younger than I am now when he made that movie. Crazy, huh? In that movie, he just looks like the oldest ass dude. I'm getting way off the topic. I think part of the Christ- the Hayden Christensen line thing is also his price was double most of the other actors that were there. It was. It was. We had the dude from Stranger Things there. $25,000. <laughs> that's so $250. Yeah, $250. I would have got his before I got Hayden Christensen. Yeah, yeah. Um, well... I don't know if it was equally priced. I, I I would put them on equal footing for for that. I'd put them on equal footing if it was equally priced. Well, what's the last thing Hayden Christensen done? Obi Wan this year. All right. Well, okay. All right. But Obi Wan's kind of booty. Man, Hayden Christensen had that that last episode. That scene between Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen was pure gold. Whatever you can say about the rest of the series, it's got its issues, but. That scene of them two together was pure gold, where they kind of overlaid James Earl Jones's voice over Hayden Christensen's voice, and you got that double, that like reverb of both of their voices. Nah, that was, I mean, that was dope. I, I give you that. And shout out to Jer- James Earl Jones, who's now retired as Darth Vader. Did you did you see that? You know, as he should, man. He's done a good job. Do you know what sucks though? Is he's given an AI firm. He signed over the rights to an AI firm to recreate his voice as Darth Vader going forward, which I'm not a big fan of. I'm not a fan of that, but that was a legacy money grab. Like before I have anybody else do that voice, mm-hmm. I'd rather for AI to do it personally. Cause Darth Vader is one of those things that, I hate to say it's a black man, but I'm gonna say it's a black man. Lando Carizian was the only black guy in the whole galaxy, right? In the beginning, but, you kind of leaned into it as a black man. At least Darth Vader's black. 
Well, I think if James Earl Jones is going to retire, then you either need to let the let the character go with him, or find Possible. someone or find someone new. And both of those are huge asks. But I don't AI just feels so soulless to me. When you after thirty you hear, years, well, after twenty something years of. Alec Guinness, we accepted Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. True story. This kind of leads me to my Disney thing, though, right? Mm -hmm. Because recently, Disney has switched CEOs. Yes. And they took out um, Bob Chapek and put in Robert Iger. And look, cars on the table, both of us own Disney stock. And them stock prices haven't been looking too good. (laughs) They they haven't, right? No, they haven't. And look, it's a lot of reasons for that. Pandemic, uh, theme park wasn't really just popping. Uh, also, sh- streaming is just a black hole that you just throw money in at this point because everybody's competing for streaming dollars. And Bob came into a rough, JPEG, that is, came into uh-huh. a rough run. Like, we got to say that. It can't be understated. But the trolls took to the internet to just, man, say the reason why Bob JPEG got replaced with Iger is because Bob JPEG was too woke. It was Black Ariel's fault. It added mm. all these diverse characters in that that made them so they had to bring back Robert Iger. Um, first of all, did Black Ariel come out yet? Not out yet. Is it not? It's not. People haven't even seen it. And okay, seen it. fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. I mean, I'm not a big <laughs> Disney movie guy, so I, I'm big on the Disney-owned properties. And as as you rightly said, I own Disney stock. Um, I've still been reading it as Disney's stock has been tanking because they've just been plowing so much into Disney plus over yes. the last kind of two, three years. And Disney plus is not yet. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say one way or the other, but it's certainly not yet a profitable business. It is not. It's, it's not making money for the company. Um, they are plowing far more into it than they are getting out of it. And the stockholders and the shareholders are seeing this, you know, as a shareholder, I've I've not had stock in Disney for that long. I've never seen a single dividend from Disney uh, because they had to stop it largely, not entirely. The pandemic had a lot to do with it as well, but largely because they were plowing so much into this Disney Plus endeavor. Mm -hmm. Yes, into like taking that slice of the Netflix pie. And I don't know exactly when or if streaming's ever going to become profitable i think it has to become profitable at some point or it'll die but right now they needed a change in leadership to someone who could find a way towards profitability for the company needed might be a strong word but i think that was the reasoning behind the scenes well for what i read what it was was really it was the his um attitude jpex attitude they mm-hmm. said they had a shareholding meeting with him and a conference call and it seemed like jpex had checked out and one thing i always say on the Common Knowledge Podcast about being a CEO, mm-hmm. your job is to shut the fuck up and be in the background. You only come out to bolster price and consumer confidence. That's your job as a CEO. You work behind the scenes. There's nothing good about like being in the forefront. Elon Musk is finding it out right now. Like, look, as a CEO, you're not supposed to be in the front. You're supposed to be in the background. Broad strokes, mm-hmm. if you are the if you're the CEO of a public, of a publicly floated company, Keeping the shareholders happy is your primary That's your job. job. That is your job. And, yep, JPEG didn't do that. That's why he's out. But the pivot to just saying, it's all about the programming. I'm like, 
are you guys even listening? Like everything can't be about wokeism, which is a loaded word, which my whole move is now when somebody says woke, I ask him, what do you mean by that? What is your definition of wokeness? I've noticed you doing that recently because I think there are several set definitions of woke. And I think it's, it's, I like the way you do that because you get a very clear answer from every person. Everyone has their own idea of what woke is and they all know what they mean when they say it. In some cases, I actually agree with the point they're trying to make. But when you say a word like that, that's so loaded, it can mean multiple different things to multiple people. Like I've said before on this podcast, me as a black man, we've been saying woke for the longest. Like mm-hmm. I've been heard woke. Mm-hmm. Woke was mean just be socially aware of what's going on. That's what it meant. But then that sparked into woke politics from the um, the left. And then the right took it and made it pejorative. So people mean different things. So when it comes to like programming, sometimes what people are trying to say is stories are boring. Right. And I now, agree, like some stories are boring. Yeah, I, I think um, if I can just piggyback off what you're saying about woke, uh, my understanding of the original meaning of woke was... Uh, primarily in the black community, it was don't get caught sleeping. Mm-hmm. Like know what's going on around you, know what's going You're on in the aware. outside of your community. Be yep. aware. Don't get caught sleeping. But now it's you know it's been kind of accosted by so many different groups. It's a pejorative. It's a it's a badge of honor. It's it, it's it can it's so many different things to so many different people. And you're right. At the end of the day, it's used in the same way now that PC was used in the nineties. And all people are using it to say is that they don't like the messages behind the stories that are being told right now, or they do like the messages, or that somehow they feel that the message is stronger than the story at the moment. Like putting forward the message Mm -hmm. is taking priority over telling the story, which um, I'm not sure I always disagree, though, that the, the message isn't taking priority over the story because, but this is not new. This is cyclical. I'd say I've seen it two or three times in my life and I've read about it. I think it's something that comes about, you know, once every decade, give or take, the the current social message sort of overtakes the drive for a story. People get very much into like the, how does it connect to society? And then there's Mm -hmm. a pushback from the people that are like, well, no, we just want escapism. Let's get away from the social stuff. And it just, it's another pendulum that just swings back and forth. In storytelling, totally I think. I agree. The only problem with that is, right, we're not, like, consistent with that standard. It's like, mm. it's it's much like the um, National Anthem protest, right? When Colin Kaepernick took a knee and people's like, I want to keep politics out of my sports. But the very notion of you having the National Anthem in your sports is political, right? Yes. There, There is no, like, differentiation between society and music. You generally write about what you're seeing in society and things like that leaking into it. So it's all about the perspective where you're writing it from. So ultimately what a lot of these complaints come to is I don't like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. You've reminded me of something actually. Um, so right now the, the, the world cup, the, or as Americans call it the FIFA world cup in yes. England, we just call it the world cup because it's the only world cup that matters <laughs> to England. Um, all of the, the British nations compete separately in the world cup. However, in the Olympics, they complete, they compete as great Britain. Mm. That's right. I didn't notice that. You said it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and it's just wild to me that this is, it makes me think about this. Where are you drawing these lines? What is this nationalism? Why does flag waving in sports have to be so deeply associated? And I guess for the World Cup, you've got to pick your teams somehow. But like, why, why, are, we, why are we separate nations for football 
and one nation for Olympic sports. I, I don't really get that. But well, a lot of this breaks down to groups you can just market it to, right? And that's what's all this coming down, especially like with Disney. It's just marketing groups, right? It's not for you in most cases. They're breaking mm. this down. They're making decisions. And they say, okay, you know what? The pivot has been made for a lot of these streaming sites that they're going at the young dollars. They're going for the younger audience that can grow with them and they can have a sustainable fan base. It's like, you see that even with the Marvel movies. They're, it's not about us. The other millennials, we're done in this town, buddy. <laughs> it's not about us. Endgame was literally, this is the end of your game. Was this the end of your game, old folks? Get out. Time for the kids. That was the writing on the wall. All right, guys, thank you. We gave it to you. That was the end of your generation. Everything else is not for you. So when I hear all these like grown men my age and your age out here saying, well, this new stuff, I don't get it. Of course you don't get it because it's not for you. It was like me trying to explain Nevada to my dad. I'm like, no, bro, this is it. I'm like, dog, this is it. This is the one. They're like, I don't get it. Yeah, I think that's all That's all very true. I do think um, at any age, you still have a right to be critical of any art. You still have a right to say what that art means to true. you and how true. you personally interpret that art and whether you enjoy that art or not. But I don't think, um, yeah, it, it's not fair to call something across the board garbage although we do because we're talking about our personal feelings but you know you always have to take into account who is this actually for who's it aimed at and am i am i even able to understand the people this is aimed at well that was a good thing about comic-con right like there was a diverse group of people who like different things there uh being Not on the stage though eh? well here's the thing right actually the show i was in the benza was on the main stage there they they you're a very diverse bunch. I'll give you that. Japan is the island of misfit toys, right? So, like, right, right. To have that show on the main stage was actually something for me. If you guys don't know, I was start in, and I actually did music for the video game and this show on Amazon Prime called The Benza with my uh, co-host of the Random Show, Alex Lex Caliber Hunter. And the story is actually about a toilet seat. That's what it's about. But to have the toilet seat story on Comic Con brings us a level of legitimacy. And it's awesome. Now, a lot of people came to me after like, wait, wait, wait. So the author, Chris McCombs, wrote a show about a toilet seat. I mean, literally, that's what the name of the show means. Toilet seat. Benza. For people who don't speak Japanese, that's literally, it's just toilet seat. And people are like, well, why would you do that? And I'm like, it's maybe not for you. It's coming from the perspective of foreigners living in Japan and the struggles we have to deal with. It's literally in that. Maybe it ain't for you. That's my whole argument. And I'm the same way with everything else. Maybe this is not for you. Maybe Miss Marvel isn't for you. Maybe the She-Hulk isn't for you. But Bob's JPEG being kicked out because you think it's some kind of woke agenda and they pushing it back against that. It's just stupid. The answer is this capitalism. Bob JPEG yeah. got kicked out because of money. And as a Disney stockholder, I ain't gonna lie. If Bob, I can get these prices up and get them to pay in dividends again, Thank you, Bob. <laughs> Iger, come on in. <laughs> Give me them dividends, baby. As a consumer, I don't think it matters which Bob is in charge of Disney. I don't think the programming yeah. is going to be any different. I think uh, the way he presents himself to the shareholders is the only it. thing that's going to change. That's it. It's literally about boosting shareholder confidence and consumer confidence and getting more money in. That's all this was about. It's not about a woke agenda, guys. Stop that. Yep.
let's look at the biggest money spinning media industry in the world right now is video games, mm. uh, which is funny because video games always, because they're the younger medium, they're always chasing movies in like, oh, this is cinematic. This is like a movie. This is, story. they're always, but actually financially, they are the biggest in the world now. Um, they make more money than any of the other industries. But you look at these CEOs, you look at these horrible, dirty snakes, as I would call them myself. <laughs> but you it's hear fitting. these, we, we had these kind of things, like these games that would just go on and on forever, and they wanted you to pay these endless fees for these games. And it sounded ridiculous. Like, why can't I just pay for my game and have my game? What is this? And they're like, well, no, because we want you to keep paying for us even once you've got the game. It's like, well, why would I? I've got the game. This is crazy. So they invented a, game, a name. They invent these terms to make the shareholders happy. Games as a service. That's one of the ones that you've, you've probably heard that by now. Mm-hmm. I have, yes. Right, now, because it's it, eventually it sneaks into the public conscious. This is a term that was first used probably three or four years ago at a shareholders meeting. And when consumers heard it, they were like, oh, that's rubbish. That'll never catch on. That's, ooh, ooh what's that? And no, no, no. It, it was definitely going to catch on. Four years ago, it was like, yeah, this is definitely going to be. Mm-hmm. In four years, we are all going to be talking about games as a service. And now you look at it. Oh, the never. Biggest, the Wait, biggest moneymaker, the biggest moneymaker for, for years now. Do you know what that one's been? Out of curiosity. Uh, yeah, which one is it? Take a guess which video game you think it might be. Resident Evil? Ah, uh, no. Resident Evil does discrete stories, so they're never going to be it. It's a games as a service one. It's actually Grand Theft Auto Online. Oh, I should have known that. Multi-billion dollar property. You know, I've never like dismissed the power of corporate suggestion and the way they use these think takes to bring thinking things into the um the consciousness. Ever since Starbucks got me to spend five dollars for a cup of coffee I can make for fifty cents in my home, right? I, I never discredit like branding from CEOs and how they I come. I mean, up that's that. I I can I can well. I, I mean, I can't forgive the markup on the Starbucks prices, but. At least when you're in a cafe, you can also think, well, there's the staff wages, there's the cost of the lighting, the rent, the, you know, that there are other costs that go into that, that bump it up from the $50. But yeah, it, it doesn't hit like the, the markup's insane. Well, I mean, here's the thing, right? And you brought up about like video games being so damn cinematic. And honestly, they're mm-hmm. kind of like the best movies out here. You know what? Like, honestly, I play video games now for the stories. Like The Last of Us, cinematic masterpiece I, i've probably mentioned this before i don't play multiplayer i don't play online multiplayer i really don't enjoy the interactions that you end up having when you play those kind of games i don't like there's a lot of what we call mm-hmm. griefing there's a lot of griefing mm-hmm. griefings well you know like for example a level 50 player will intentionally target a level one completely new player <laughs> all the time and just hound them for hours and they'll make that their day they will make that their day and that is fun for that person somehow and then i i the the last game i played this is going this will date it was red dead redemption one online oh they just killed the server for that too for the first one oh that's so sad i fucking hated it (laughs) i i went on there and i had the i made the mistake of leaving the chat on and there was just so much kind of i don't know aggression racism homophobia oh all, let me tell you something being a black gamer 
let me tell you something. You expect to hear the N-word at least five times in the waiting room. Like, that was just a, a thing for me. In the Halo waiting room, I'm like, oh, in here it comes. waiting room. Before like, you even get into the mm-hmm. game. What's up, the N-word? I'm like, how do you know I'm black? I saw your name, Marcus. I'm like, all right, word. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, like, that you can expect to do. In the first five minutes, you're going to hear some N-words. Obviously, white signing young boys just letting it fly. I'm like, man, how old are you? Oh, <laughs> this is me I, in college, like, playing with... 10-year-olds. Like, how old are you, bro? This is this was the last time I ever played online gaming was really, was this Red Dead Redemption. I, I played a bit of Fall Guys a year or two ago. That was a, a fun and very different experience. But the last time I did the kind of online gaming we're talking about right now was Red Dead Redemption 1. I spent a morning getting griefed by a level 50 player. But the reason <laughs> I did that was because I struck out on my own. And whenever I beat him, I'd jump up a few levels. And I was just thinking... How is this fun for you? Because if I killed you, you've just been killed by a complete noob. And But if you kill me, like you can one-shot me. You've been playing this for however long. You've got the golden rifles and everything. But the reason I ended up striking out on my own and getting like trailed by this guy who decided that was going to be the rest of his day was because I joined the posse in the game. Because it's a cowboy game, joined the posse. And we're all walking out to a mission together. And then one of the guys just shoots a bunch of people in the back of the head. Like, <laughs> a member of the posse. <laughs> That's hilarious, a, by the way. A dude on the live chat goes, dude, what the hell? And then he, the guy hears the live chat. The guy's like, no, what are you? Some kind of pacifist faggot. And I was like, huh, <laughs> huh, how, how do we get this, there? This is not for me. And I was just like, right, leave this part of the game. And I went to another part of the game, had an equally terrible experience and was like, Ah, I think I'm done with this kind of online gaming. Thank you very much. Well, it's funny. This draws into like my point about Elon Musk when he came into Twitter and he's like, I'm going to make everything free speech. I'm like, dude, no, 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 no. You got to have guardrails because you can't trust people. And that's the reason why you have moderation, because you can't trust people. Somebody's going to go too far. Always. That's why you got to kind of have some kind of guardrails. It's always going to be. Like people who slide through the cracks, you can't do everything. Like this is one thing I've learned, like doing cybersecurity and getting all my certifications. One thing I learned is people will sit up and just maliciously think of ways to tear down your security. There are people who Mm -hmm. actually just sit up and be like, I wonder how I can get away from this moderation. People just think about that. Mostly teenagers actually research shows. It's mostly teenagers. Just using their time to grief people. Yeah. Yep. 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 That's part of the human condition, man. We like to troll people. We like to be assholes. They're older, they're old enough, they're educated enough, they're smart enough, they're hormonal and angry enough, they're going to spend their time and energy doing stuff like that. They have nothing else to do. Like, at the age of 15, you really have no responsibility. You think life sucks because you're in high school and nobody understands you and get out of my career, mom. But honestly, all you have to do is just think of malicious ways to try to get around the system. Especially in the last few years where a pandemic meant they were shutting at home and had very little social stuff going on outside of the internet. True story. Yo, if you like the Common Knowledge Podcast, check out the random show hosted with me and the homie Alex Lex Caliber Hunter. On the random show, we talk about random shit. (laughs) Follow us on Instagram at random. That's R-A-N dash D-U-M-B. Random. Lee, uh, in the news, Quentin Tarantino had a lot to say on the Two Bears, One Cave podcast, where he was pretty much shooting at Marvel movies. And what's your take on this, man? Do you want to give the whole background story of what happened? 
Well, first of all, let's just say Quentin Tarantino's always got a lot to say. And I think the initial reporting of it, because I didn't actually watch the podcast. I saw the reporting in the fallout and the beef between him and Simi Liu, the um, titular Shang-Chi um, of the movie. So Tarantino essentially said that he doesn't think that Marvel movie actors are actual real movie stars and then about a week later he went on the talk show circuit he then started saying well you're not going to these movies to watch for example chris evans or chris hemsworth or chris pratt or chris prine or how many chris's can i do here so many chris's and he said no you know you're going there to see thor or captain america or he's saying that the characters are the star and therefore, the stars of these Marvel, what I think Scors- was it Scorsese called it, the mm-hmm. roller coaster. He, I mean, a lot of them have, have tried to decry these as not being real movies, are not movie stars. That was the, the basic brunt of what he said. I think that's fair to say, right? And Simi Liu essentially came back actually really polite and respectful in his response. He was like, I love Tarantino. I love like his movies, the guy's undeniably got a lot of talent but without this diverse casting that uh, marvel's doing now because that was part of i think what tarantino was sort of decrying was that they were throwing anyone and everyone in it was a major point of his right his rant on there he's like it's a he said this he said i'm paraphrasing but he said it's a lack of diversity and representation in movies all right right now the movie spirit is being crowded by nothing but marvel movies the marvelization of movies right now in this age of uh, movie making. So he said that the problem is there's not a diverse array of movies to be presented. Like most of them are just superhero movies. There's no diverse in subject topics and titles of movies. That was like Tarantino's argument. Look at you doing a much better version of giving them, doing a much better job of giving a potted version of this than me. Look at that. Hey, Who's the pop culture expert now? Hey, we're getting better at this. <laughs> you are, you really are. Um, yeah, and that's exactly what he said. And Simi Liu came back saying, you want to talk about diversity? There's no way in hell before these Marvel movies were being made that an Asian American like me would have been given a $4 billion movie. I got the tweet right here. He said, if the only gatekeepers to movie stardom came from Tarantino and Scorsese, I would never have had the opportunity to lead a 400 million plus movie. I am in awe of their filmmaking genius. There are transcendent uh, auteurs, but they don't get the point that knows this at me or anyone. For me, this is a perfect case of two things being right and nobody being wrong. I think nobody would make the argument that these Marvel movies are cinematic masterpieces. We actually had a little... Um, a little chat about this on the day, didn't we? We, we had a little did. back and forth about this. And that's we, we both just immediately said to each other, I think almost at the exact same time, we texted each other saying, like, they're both right, though. Yeah, they're both right. They both made points. They're both right. This- Two of them are right. One of them sounded like an asshole saying it. Th- that's all it was, man. Like, Tarantino does not have the right to stick his nose up at the, the, the diversity and talk about diversity. Well, the problem is no diversity. Really, Tarantino? Really, as a director where no women have representation, it's just a good old boys club with nothing but white directors, you're going to talk about diversity in movies? And and as a writer that decided that 
as a white American writer that he knew the black voice better than black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's also, you know, <laughs> I mean, the, the guy believes that he has a solid, solid um, grasp on every voice in the world, every gender, every race. He believes he's got a solid, solid grasp, but I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. I'm not going to take that away from him. He is. But totally. I don't think that he has quite the level of grasp that he believes he has. He does not. And Spike Lee shot at him about that, man. This was like in the early 2000s. Well, that was, that was when he was like, I'm a white guy that's allowed to say the N-word. Right? Uh-huh. Spike, Spike, Spike Lee didn't really enjoy that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And nor did the black community, right? <laughs> he realized that was a losing proposition he got out of there. But I still remember that as mm-hmm. a guy growing up. I'm like, wait, you think you should be allowed to say this because you cast in black people? Which speaks to the lack of diversity, dude. Like, okay, a lot of the pushback online was like, well, how dare Shimmy say this? Because if he watched Tarantino movie, he would see an array of diversity in there. He gave mm. Samuel L. Jackson his star. Look at all these black guys. Denzel Washington was in his movies. He's always been welcoming. He got a multi. Look at Kill Bill. And I'm like, guys, you're kind of making lose point. You're thinking diversity as look at these people. Like, black folks has always been in movies, but how were they portrayed? Like, you can go back to Gone to Win. Like, look how the black people portray as to help or doing something stupid and dumb. Diversity doesn't just mean like different races, but a diversity in character representation and what these characters are doing. Like, I've always told people, even as an actor, I'm okay with black thugs and gangsters being on screen. I just want to balance it out with black doctors, scientists, and lawyers. Because Guess what? We have black doctors, scientists, and lawyers. And when it comes to Tarantino movies and Scorsese movies, how many black doctors, scientists, and lawyers or main leads did you see? So it's kind of funny for Tarantino, but if the problem is diversity, you don't say. Hmm. I mean, I'll give Tarantino, I suppose, one slight get out for that is that at least in most of his movies um, and this is something you've mentioned before yourself, that most of his movies most of the characters are kind of lowbrow and terrible it doesn't really matter where they're coming from there are very few there are very few highbrow or good or decent characters in his movies he's a master of violence right he is the master of stylized violence you go to a tarantino movie for that you go for the violence however that was from what he'll tell you where it's from it is from the black exportation film that's how he got his own style from. I was just about to say, he's the master of snappy dialogue is what, he, is what he is. He lifts a lot of his violence, his style, and a lot of the shots that he takes. The famous shots that I grew up seeing on posters in university rooms, like, you know, what you'd call college dorm room posters, you know, like all those shots, those poses, the shots, the setup, all of it were taken either from Hong Kong cinema Mm-hmm. black exploitation lifted straight shot for shot like he would just yes. recreate the exact shot with different actors mm-hmm. and the, the context would be different very often but he would recreate the shots he'd even lift some of the context mix and match and then add in that really snappy tarantino dialogue and his dialogue is snappy and he knows how to get the best out of good actors that he picks yes and no for me man and i hate to say this i hate to be this guy man it's okay I've noticed this thing, and I hate to make this the black and the black, black, black segment, but I've noticed this thing as a, a black guy growing up in America, and it could be different in England, but mm. like 
the trendsetters in America have always been black people. It's this joke that we have that every once a, a white man comes out as gay, he becomes a uh, black woman. Dialogue wise, <laughs> like yes, child, yes, queen. That like that dialogue is something you always hear from black people, right? But like, when they yeah. come out, they instantly find their inner black woman, right? And it's the same thing with like cultural terms. In words, like I grew up saying certain things, but when black people said it, it was looked at as uncouth and stupid, and then it gets into the mainstream, and then white folks copy it, and now it's just instantly cool. And that's the thing with Tarantino, a lot of his stuff is just lifted off of like black culture. I guess that's where that it's almost a comedy trope. I know I've seen it in a f- several things. I'm not sure if you've heard it in, in American comedies too. Maybe I've heard it in those, but there's a line that you quite often get, usually from a w- middle-aged white man, I am a strong black woman. Now that you're saying like the kind of coming out and the chasing the trends and the, and it's like, oh shit, this is so, <laughs> like, you're absolutely right. That is the point of chasing the trend. Once, once a middle-aged white man is like, I am now cutting edge. The go-to is, I am now a strong black woman. That is... That's the thing, though. Like, I saw that with Tarantino. Like, these are things that were done, but when black folks did, it was like, oh, my God. They called it black exploitation. Like, it was Mm -hmm. all garbage. Mm -hmm. But then when Tarantino repackaged it in some of the same lines, the snappy dialogue that was in those movies that was called, oh, that's so lowbrow. When he did it, oh, my God, this is so new and innovative. And it's not just that. I've seen it with so many things. I saw it with hip-hop. I saw it with fashion trends. I saw it with dreads. I saw it with braids. Like, I remember when the term bling came out, which was started by Lil Wayne in Louisiana. People were like, I'm not calling Jerry bling. And then it got added to the Webster Dictionary because white folks got onto it. And that's the problem I have with this not, this guy now that's crying, we need more diversity. You don't say. I think it's also funny that as a guy who was on the forefront of kind of indie filmmaking himself, not that long ago in all, in the grand scheme of things, who was constantly under fire from the media for right. uh, for doing things that were not, like now he's become part of the establishment that's now doing the pushback yes. about what the current thing is, just feels a little bit like... Ah, Father Time grinds us all down. At the end, we're all going to be our dads, aren't we? It's so <laughs> funny, right? Because of... even like, our generation, we raised against the machine, and now we became the machine. Like, we are the machine now. I remember the big thing they said when I was uh, when I was just starting work in my 20s, um, that all of these button-down managers that we had, the reason they were always so buttoned down, they always had the long sleeve shirts on, they always had the, the shirt buttoned right up to the top collar, and it's like, yeah, dude, because they're trying to hide all their punk tattoos from the 80s. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bad decisions. Would you call it bad decisions, but it's just normal teenage rebellion becoming the machine? Exactly. Well, I mean, like, from society's standpoint, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you have to kind of bow down to whoever's above you, right? Yeah. Once again, you Generation uh, Z guys, you're welcome because we over you. Like, we're getting out of the baby boomer generation. Most of them are dying off and COVID didn't take them. I'm sorry to be so morbid, but it's true. Like, that was the boomer apocalypse. It got a lot of these baby boomers the hell out of here. Now you got right. the Xers and right. the millennials are now taking over. So all this freedom that the Z has, like your get down, it comes from us millennials. You're welcome. But on the other hand, it's not like we escaped the machine either. Because we, oh, we, we, we were talking about this um, at the start of the podcast. We were talking about owning Disney stock, right? Mm-hmm. Me and you are both anti-capitalists who play the stock market. Here's the thing. <laughs> I tell everybody. 
I am a capitalist to my heart and my core. I'm about this capitalism life because I uh-huh. believe that capitalism is the only form of government that takes into account the greed mechanism. And as humans, we're going to be flawed. I'm not so married to capitalism so I can't hear the critiques of capitalism. And I think capitalism needs to be regulated strongly. Like you got to have regulations at every turn. I would actually say you're wrong to say that you're a capitalist then. Then you are a pure mixed economy advocate. Eh, okay. The, <laughs> I'll take that. Okay. All the, right. That's um, fair. Going back to, I, I studied economics a little bit in my younger days. And, you know, your economy is basically, you basically have capitalist at one end, communist at the other, and anything along that scale is mixed. And I've always been very much, very close to center mixed. But I do believe that capitalism has its place, as you say, with regulation, with proper social care, like healthcare, universal healthcare, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, things like that. So with proper social care systems set up, capitalism has its place to actually take into account human nature. Yeah, you got to have social safety nets. Like you got to have a police department, a fire department, mm-hmm. and you got to have healthcare. It has to be a right. It can't be a privilege. It has to be a right. You got to have that. Like once again, the only industrialized country that doesn't have that is the United States of America, which goes back to racism. But I'm just saying, like, you got to have those things. Like, so as a capitalist, I'm going to be the first to tell you, like, if you ain't got those, man, you're going to have to work in society. But mm-hmm. getting back to what we were talking about with uh, Shimmy and Quentin Tarantino, it's like both of those guys had interesting points. Yes. And I'm with Tarantino when he says, like, these movies are, because going back to the woke loaded word, like, most of the time we're talking about story. The stories have become homogenistic and the same thing. You know what's going to happen before it happens. And I, like I said many times, I feel like these Marvel movies have jumped the shark because they well, have. We, we both talked about She-Hulk recently and how that even in its last episode even calls itself out for how homogenous these stories yes. are becoming. And, <laughs> and that falls into this trap that I was just complaining about Scream on my own podcast uh, last week, the new Scream movie that is, not Scream from the 90s, Scream 2022, about how just because you are calling out movies for doing the thing and then doing it, that doesn't make it clever satire. That You're still doing the thing. Even if you're calling it out and then still doing the thing, you're still doing the thing. It doesn't let you off the hook. But equally true, you're not getting directors of different gender and racial identities, writers of different gender and racial identities, actors, you know, people both in front and behind the camera producing things without this Disneyfication. Exactly. Like, it has to be a baseline. And what Disney is doing is going to allow other mediums to take chances on other diverse writers Mm -hmm. and actors. Mm -hmm. Because my thing with Tarantino, going back to him... I'm like, bro, you're talking about a lack of diversity. You know you could be the catalyst for this, right? Like, that could be you. Like, you have gotten enough cachet in Hollywood to the point you could be the, the change you want to see. And that's my whole thing with a lot of these guys. I'm like, wait. The man built his fortune off black exploitation and Hong Kong cinema. He could very easily, I mean, maybe he has. I haven't looked into it too deeply, but the man could very easily produce a whole new wave of Black cinema yep. for the mainstream. Yep. I don't mean black cinema, because black cinema exists. It does. We, we both know that. It, it mm-hmm. already exists. You know, the, the black community 
um, especially in in America, I'm not sure if it's Hollywood where they produce their stuff, but um, there is certainly black cinema and there it has its own stars it has its own movies its own writers its own uh, some of them break out into the mainstream um some of them were familiar with by name what like um medea mm-hmm. um we're, we're familiar well yeah yeah so we're familiar with before tyler perry became more famous we were sort of familiar by the name but merely more just as a kind of joke than mm-hmm. you'd hear it mentioned like i've never seen a single one of those movies but I I'm had, black. I've seen a lot of them. <laughs> a I lot. was going to say, I was going to say, I have black friends in England who would watch the shit out of all of those movies and mm-hmm. had seen all of them. And I'd never seen a single one. Um, the, you know, a lot of comedians, a lot of, there's a whole, like, until I started hanging out with black people in London, I, there were all these comedians, actors, there's this whole other media under the mainstream that I'd never even never had any idea existed. It was like, oh, wait, there's this whole thing? Quentin Tarantino could have given that a push. He could have used his money if he really cared about where his his influences came from. He could have given that a bump up to the mainstream. But he couldn't. Know why? Because he was profiting off of it. And that goes back to my original point. Like, Tarantino uh-huh, yeah. profited off all of that. So he can't, like, bring those guys out there because that's going to take the shine away from him. I'm not, and Once again, look, I'm not saying Tarantino is not talented. I'm not saying that he didn't, like, push his own narrative and write some great movies because he did. He is great. But Tarantino has always said he's going to make 10 movies and be done. I, I understand what you're saying that he didn't want to take the shine off him, but he's got one more movie apparently. And then he said he's never going to make another one after that. And so why not do it now? Why is he bitching about Disney doing it instead of doing it himself now? He's got nothing to lose at this point. Exactly. You, you've done it. And that's my whole point with that whole argument. However, Tarantino point is still valid that these movies and the stories are bunk. But I mean, the argument about you're going to see Captain America, not the star, uh, that's kind of a weak argument. It's kind of weak sauce to me. I mean, Batman, James Bond, mm-hmm. like any number that. of like, like Flash Gordon. Basically at this point, because of the amount of remakes of Hollywood, I think you can name pretty much any pop culture character and point to that character having been played by several actors. Well, even Star Wars, right? Like the the actress didn't make that movie. The, the characters made that movie. I would disagree, but Harrison Ford was a nobody, dude. <laughs> Harrison Ford was a nobody for that. He didn't sell the movie, but he made the movie. I don't he, think Okay, that's my point. It's like, but the character he played made the movie. Mark Hamill wasn't really just a star then, but Luke Skywalker made Mark Hamill. Like, he walked around, he'll forever be Luke Skywalker. It'll yeah. never be a time where they'd be like, well, Mark Hamill, the voice of the Joker. No, it's, oh, Luke Skywalker. I, I'm one of those people because I'm just such a... Me too, arsehole. me too. I'm one, those, I'm one of those people that's always like, oh my God, it's the voice of the Joker. Before me too. I'm like, it's... I was so tripped out when I found out that was Mark Hamill. Like, what? The Star Wars guy? But that's my point, right? It's always been times where characters have outshined the actors and the actors become mm. that character because what they do. So uh, that's kind of the point where Tarantino said, I'm like, dude, that's always kind of been the point. But, you know, these actors had to do it so well. Anthony Mackie had to do a good job as Falcon for you to believe as Falcon. Had to. And plus, Chad was Bozeman. Let's be honest. He was a star way before the Marvel shit. Like, he played every black guy. <laughs> name it. You name it. Chad with Bozeman's played him. James Brown, Jackie Robinson, they're a good Marshall. 
Why not the Prince of Wakanda? <laughs> I mean, yeah, very true. Uh, man, he, Jackie Robinson. That was now, now that was a movie that I had no interest in because I don't care for baseball. And I watched it on a on a plane one time, and then Ooh, I was yeah. like, "No, man, I'm wrong. This yeah. is this is <laughs> right. this is gold." Yeah, it was such a good movie. That's the thing Tarantino was trying to say. I think he was trying to say that the interest is not there for a diverse array of films. Like, people want this, and people are going for the money. Like, Disney is uh-huh. definitely going for the money, so they're pumping these superhero movies down your throat because that's where the money is at. And once again, Bob Iger, like, if that's what's going to bring the money in, <laughs> hey, give them all yeah. the Marvel characters. What other obscure Marvel character can we create? Werewolf by Night? Do it. <laughs> what? Bloodstones? You got it. And humans? Bring that shit on in here. That's the point that I think Tarantino was trying to make, but he made it poorly. Yes, yeah, he made it in a way that made him seem like a gatekeeper rather than a person that was interested yes. in preserving the integrity of cinema. Because that's the honest discussion. Like, how do we get a diverse array of things in? I've just given myself a question. How do you preserve... I mean, this is kind of a really amorphous term anyway, but how do you preserve the integrity of cinema without gatekeeping? Because and, and I, we shouldn't gatekeep for sure, so maybe we don't need to preserve the integrity of cinema. Maybe we should just let it all in and just let the cream float to the top. Okay, here's the thing. And I've actually thought about this. I'm glad you asked that question. Because I saw this, the renaissance of hip-hop music, the new renaissance. And I call Mm. that around the 96 to 99 what happened mm-hmm. was, right, you had a bunch of gatekeepers. Like, in order to make a song, you had to go to the studio. You had to pay, like, $50 to $100 an hour. After that, you had to pay, like, $50 an hour to get it mixed. After that, you had to pay, like, upward to $500 to get it mastered. I did that process, right, to get mm-hmm. my first album out. But what happened around 1997, 98, around that era, technology caught up. So I was able to buy a computer. I remember buying my first computer and getting cakewalk. That changed mm. the game for a lot of us. And you're seeing the same thing with movies right now. This is the new renaissance for movies because technology has made it so cheap. Like, you can damn near shoot a quality 4K movie on your iPhone. That was unthinkable, like, 30 years ago. Hell, 15 years ago, you couldn't even think about that, right? But technology has gotten so damn good now that, look, man, I can get me a Sony A7 for, like, $3,000 and Uh shoot me a quality 4K movie, then take it to Adobe Premiere with some above-average editing skills, get a quality product out and push it. You're absolutely right. That's what's happening now. So that is why you're going to see like more diverse things coming out. It's the YouTube-ification of entertainment. I mean, you're absolutely right. The The equipment we have available to us now at a very... At a, consu- a consumer level price, I would say, not like a professional level price, even just a standard consumer level price is more capable of giving us, I would say, probably better effects than you would have seen in certainly in the Star Wars prequel ch- trilogy. Bruh, After Effects now is way better than anything you're going to see in that. I can't make a lightsaber in After Effects right now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I can make a lightsaber. The, we've reached, you're, you're, you are very right. We've reached a point where. I've watched fan films in the last couple of years that in terms of writing, casting, directing, acting, they've been gripping. They've been better than things that I've been watching on streaming services. David Frank, before he died, was actually trying to fund, self-fund that new Power Rangers movie, right? And I saw a clip of the new Power Rangers movie, Rest in Peace, Green Ranger, always my favorite Ranger. Uh, But when I saw his movie, it was actually pretty damn good. And that was self-funded. Right. I'm like, yo, the, the 
the amount of stories that are coming out now is a function of being able to do something on a minimal budget. Like, just to give a little inside pool, like you guys know that I'm writing a movie and I'm getting to the point that I'm trying to pitch it, man. And budget is a thing. For a lot of, I would say, indie films, the budget is like anywhere between a million to three million for a, a good movie. But mm-hmm. a lot of these movies that you see are being done, like the indie films are being done with $10,000. If you've got some high-end consumer products and technology-wise, I mean, like your computer's like high-end and you, you can afford a few of the programs to do the effects and the editing and you've got a few talented friends, you can get so much done these days with so little effort. Well, not little, not effort. Not effort. I'm sorry. I said effort. I mean money. Money. It takes the effort. You need the talent and the effort, but with a bit of cooperation, a few friends, and a fairly low amount of money, you can get a hell of a lot done. But contrast to Tarantino's time, right? For him, man, you had to go to a film school. Then you had to know mm-hmm. somebody. Mm-hmm. You had to get your script. And then they had to put that into um, coverage multiple times and spec it out. And you had to mm-hmm. know somebody. That was... I was, was going to say networking. Yes, that's, that was how, that's the area he came. So I get what he's saying. Like, Yeah. I mean, when you, when you put in so much work on something and you work so hard. And as a dance teacher, I also feel this a little bit um so i i've trained with some of the best dancers in the world i'm actually you know i'm qualified by as a dance teacher i'm qualified by the oh last time i met her she was like 23 times world champion Mm, like right these are like top top level people and i've trained and i worked and i spent so much money working with them and then i see these people who just like you know they watch a few hours of youtube go to a club, start teaching lessons and they're making as much money as me and getting as many students as me. And mm-hmm. I, I don't even necessarily rate them as good dancers, let alone good teachers. And I look at them and then it's like, I, 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 I feel you, Quentin Tarantino. I me feel too. you. That, I get it. That you put that mm-hmm. fucking money and effort in and all the networking and all the years. And now some dude with an iPhone's just putting stuff on YouTube mm-hmm. and getting as many people watching as you. Like, I it feel sucks. you, man. I, bro, music, musician, man. I'm out here doing... <laughs> Masterful compositions out here trying to use live instruments, playing complex chord progressions. And next thing I know, I hear some boom, 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 boom. I'm like, really? That's what y'all, that, that, all this hard work I'm giving y'all, all this music theory I'm learning, and this is what y'all gravitate to? I get it, Tarantino. I get right, it. Right, right, right. But it still doesn't make you right. It doesn't make you right. And once again, the renaissance is coming because of technology, dude. That was I saw with music, like, People made that argument about rap music. Rap music has gotten terrible. Why has it gotten so terrible? I'm like, no, there's always been terrible rappers out here. It just cost a lot <laughs> to get yeah. your product out there. Now, like with minimum work, well, I ain't gonna say minimum work. Once again, but minimum money, you can get a project. I can do a whole damn song in one day and put it out on Spotify within three yeah, days. It, it's a tough thing because there is so much, because now everybody has a voice. This was always going to be the difficult part of this part of pop culture is now that everybody has a voice. Yes. Everybody it, has it's, a hard, it's hard to curate because you can't, it's really hard to find the best of the kind of content that you enjoy because it's, there's just so much, everyone's got a voice. There's so much to dig through, but also should we curate it? Should we even try to curate it? Because if we do, 
then we're blocking people out again just for no reason. Oh, we don't. Not... We're going to have to. That's my whole point. We're going to have to do this. And this is the essence of being human, I feel like. We did it with cryptocurrency, right? Like, you have a whole blockchain platform that's supposed to be free-flowing and anybody can do it. But what do we do? Oh, I need to go to exchange. Why? Because it's more convenient, right? Like okay, that's, that's like, very true. We yeah. always do this in any set. Like, we need to curate things because we it's too much. We're buying for too much airtime right now. Like yeah. it's so hard to get that. So you got to kind of trust somebody's recommendation of like, man, what should I be listening to? This is exactly what I was just about to say is I think through the, the vast majority of what I consume, the media I consume, the podcasts I listen to now are things that I find through people whose work I already enjoy recommendations from either friends who I know have tastes that I either share or respect or kind of other celebrities, podcasters, or movie makers, or if they say like, oh, I recommend this movie and I enjoy their stuff or respect their opinion, that'll give me a push in that direction. But it's hard to have the level of curation that we used to have, as you rightly said, in Tarantino's time when he was coming up. But, you know, that leads to the thing, like people ask me, like, just to pat myself on the back, I got a million streams on Spotify this year. And people ask me, like, how did you get a million streams? And I keep telling them it's because I had to vow for that. I had to, I didn't buy streams. I don't do that shit, right? So I had to like cultivate a community. How did I do it? By being visible, going on every platform, starting a podcast, and cultivating the community. I got, I don't call people, look, the call of the people who rock with me fans is denigrating in my eyes. I just say people who rock with me because mm-hmm. these folks have literally picked me up on their back. Because it's hard. You you would think it's easy because most of these streaming platforms are free and they pay me pennies on the dollars. But getting somebody to listen to that is hard. Understanding the current landscape of PR is the the key these days. And I, I certainly don't, but I do respect that as a necessary talent in the world these days. Eventually, we're going to have gatekeepers in TikTok. We already got it in YouTube. Like yes. YouTube, it's over for YouTube. Like for the independent artists, oh, you're done in this town, buddy. Facebook and YouTube is for our generation. There's already stuff that's superseded that long ago. TikTok's even on its way to being, you know, for the old folks. Something new is gonna pop up. I know a few like platforms are popping up now. And like I said, Tarantino, you came off sounding like an old man barking at the moon. Like you basically mm-hmm. came off the you mm-hmm. kids need to get off my goddamn yard. It's funny mentioning seeing the new platforms because especially as well with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, which I know we're not going to get into today because that's another like half hour at least of discussion. But but I'm seeing more and more people tagging their new platforms in or the platform that they're using. And I'm going to be very interested to see which one of these fights its way to the top and which is going to be the next, probably the next multi-billion dollar company. Well, you know, the problem is it's going to be like streaming. Like when you only had one show in town, Netflix, it was easy. That one show got everything. But now you got Disney, Paramount, and these other streaming platforms. It made it so it's not even profitable anymore. And that's what's going to happen with these social media platforms. Well, you say that. But then on the other hand, you know, each one seems to capture a generation. Like TikTok Mm. has a very specific age group that go to TikTok now. And Facebook Mm. has its own age group. And I think... I think that's just the way that it's, you know, TV had its own age group. Facebook and YouTube had its own age group. And I think it's working its way... I think the next one's going to be just as big, but it's not going to be for us. It's going to be for, you know, for our kids. True story. And Tarantino, think about that next time you say something. Yeah. And Simi Lou, well done for being respectful. 
while saying what you needed to say and both being right. Anything else you want to talk about, man? Or should I tell my how I almost met Christopher Lloyd story? <laughs> oh, let's do the Christopher Lloyd story because I've heard it and I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> actually, you can tell the story you want to. Did you actually call me from Christopher Lloyd's dressing room or after you'd left? <laughs> Both. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so... Let's go from the start. How did you end up in Christopher Lloyd's dressing room? All right. So it's not what you think, everyone. It's not what you think. Right? <laughs> we know that Marcus is sexually ambiguous, but yes. it's not what you think. <laughs> so guys, what it was, was uh, for Comic-Con, I got invited to Comic-Con because I did music for the Benza RPG and the Benza. Now streaming on Amazon Prime. Go check it out. The Benza. And because of that, I was given a free ticket. But to get the free ticket, I had to go up to Comic-Con. This was a Friday. It was at noon. I called Chris McCombs, who was giving me the free ticket. And he's like, well, yeah, just meet me in Hall 6 of this big convention center. I've been there before because I live around the corner from it. But I didn't know where the hell Hall 6 was. So I come up to the convention, and there's a staff member right there. And I'm like, excuse me, sir, where is Hall 6? And he just points there, like, oh, right over there. Go around the corner. Go through here. I'm like... Okay, that's fake. So there's no line, no ticket or anything like that. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to go through here. So I went through this line. Apparently, that was the re-entry line. <laughs> and I just walk in. And when I walk in, somebody gives me a bag full of, like, Marvel stuff, a Marvel goodie bag. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. And now that you're holding the bag, literally no one questions that you're not someone who's paid to be there. Nobody questioned anything. Once again, I didn't ask for this bag. It was just handed to me. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. So it was a big group of people who were making a right. So I just made a right with them. So I'm walking and I'm looking around, looking for Hall 6. I look to my left, I see Hall 4. I'm like, okay, well, I guess if I keep on walking, I'm either going to see 3 or 5. I keep walking, I see 5. I'm like, okay, I'm going the right direction. I see Hall 6 and I see a little door that's open, this crack, like leading backstage. I'm like, okay, that can't be right. I see a security guard. He looks at me. I look at him and I keep on walking by. No problem. I keep on walking. Then I somehow make it to hall nine. I'm like, wait, how did that happen? So I'm like, I need to go, obviously go back. So I go back. I'm like, okay, maybe hall six entrances on the other side. That's a long walk. I see the security guard. He sees me. He's not saying anything. So with all the confidence and bravado, I just walk into the open door. I'm like, it's open. Hell. Just that's the Comic-Con's big kind of customer days of the Saturday and Sunday, of course, the weekends. Yes. The, um, the the Friday's got a lot of setup, right? And a lot of um, press, a lot of industry people, really. <laughs> exactly. That's what it was, right? And I'm dressed like, I'm not going to say sharply or business casual, I would say. Yeah, you are. Come on, just say it. Big well, yourself up. I you was were dressed, looking hot. I was business casual, right? I had a blazer on, some jeans, and some Adidas, right? Business right. casual. <laughs> yuppie. Very yuppie-ish with my hair braided in a nice... Ki- Cut. So I had that in the bag. So I just walked in with confidence into the open door. I'm now behind backstage. So I'm just walking around, still trying to find, like, Hall 6. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm in Hall 6. I'm like, where am I going? At this time, Chris McCombs called. He's like, hey, Marcus, where you at? I'm like, dude, I'm behind stage. He's like, what? When I actually told him where I was at, he's like, I've never seen that place before. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to keep on walking around. So I get off the phone with him. I look around. And I'm just walking past people. Like, people see me. I'm not hiding. I'm in plain sight. I walk past this one Japanese lady. I speak in English. Hey, how you doing? I go into this other room. 
with a whole group of Japanese people. I speak. I'm very cordial. So I'm just walking around like, well, I'm backstage. Let's see how far I can go. I walk. I look to the right. And I see this sign that says Christopher Lloyd. I'm like, what? Doc Brown? Is this dressing room? So I'm like, well, fuck it. I'm already here. I might as well check it out. So I go and I knock on the door. Like, Mr. Lloyd, sir? Mr. Lloyd? <laughs> no answer. I'm like, shit, is Christopher Lloyd dead? Mr. Lloyd? <laughs> <laughs> so let's just be, let's just be clear, right? Purely out of concern for Christopher Lloyd's health and safety and making sure he, you know, wasn't dead. You opened the door and went into his room. Purely out of concern. So I opened up the door. No Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, Christopher Lloyd's not here. But I see Christopher Lloyd's lunch. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this point, I called Dan. <laughs> and you said to me, should I eat Christopher Lloyd's lunch? <laughs> and then you thought about it for a couple of I didn't actually say a word because I was about to I was about to say, take his lunch, man. I would take Christopher Lloyd's lunch. So I'd, I'd frame that shit. But like you thought about it for a beat and then you went, nah, nah, I can't do that. <laughs> I literally called Dan like, hey man, should I eat Christopher Lloyd's lunch? And they're like, <laughs> No, nah. Marcus, don't eat Christopher Lloyd. Don't do that. Don't do that. Let's be clear. It was you that said, no, Marcus, don't do that. I it was, was not the one saying no to that. <laughs> it wasn't you. It was not you. It was me. I talked myself out of it. You did. You did. So I leave the lunch. I close the door and I walk out. And I'm like, it hit me. What if Christopher Lloyd was actually in there? Like, why didn't anybody stop me from going in? It's like, this is terrible security. Like, if I wanted to touch Christopher Lloyd, I probably could have got him. What if he'd been in there touching himself? That would have been another story. <laughs> because I would have been like, oh, really? I guess somebody's going to promote me in Hollywood, buddy, unless you want this story to come out. Matter of fact, he probably like, Psh. everybody knows that story about Christopher Lloyd touching himself. That's what he does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but would I have a leg to stand on because I came and disturbed him in this private dressing room? No, not at all. Not exactly. at all. In your private dressing room, you can do uh, pretty much whatever you want when you're by yourself, I think. I think that counts as consensual. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah, the, the security issue is, I, again, that's sort of, um, you know, the Friday when it's mostly the industry people there, right? I, um, how was, you went there on what, Saturday? Yeah, I went there Saturday and I could have got how in How was Sunday. the security on Saturday? Was it, um, was it a bit tighter than on the, the big day? So it's so funny, right? That Friday, um, since I got in through the back door and Chris mm. gave me my ticket, he was like, dude, I don't know how the hell you came in through there. Like, he was in awe, like, <laughs> that makes no sense. And literally to get to him, I walked past, like, guards. <laughs> yes. Like, literally walked past guards who were just sitting there guarding the gate. To, to At these kind of conventions and stuff, just to kind of explain to people who don't live in Japan or haven't visited Japan, the, the big conventions in Japan tend to be held at the same place. Yes. And they tend to hire kind of older Japanese dudes. They do, um, yes. To be the guards. And, you know, these older Japanese guys, no doubt, they look at Marcus, a black American guy, walking around like he's supposed to be there, and they probably just think, He's probably one of those American Hollywood types, and they let him pass. <laughs> Literally, like that's that what it was. Like that's exactly what it was. So I walk in, I get my ticket from Chris, and he's like, "Well, I guess you don't have to use your ticket. You can just walk around." So I just stayed. Like since I was already in, I'm like, mm, let me just walk around. And I talked to a few people and got some connections and and everything. But the next day, when I was supposed to be there, Chris was like, "Look, I'll give you a backstage pass this time, so you don't have to like." <laughs> 
<laughs> like disturb Christopher Lloyd. Like just don't go to Christopher Lloyd's dress. He actually said, just don't go to Christopher Lloyd's dress room this time. But I actually got a backstage pass Saturday and I actually went around backstage talking to people right. and going around. Did you get to meet any of the big stars? I did not. I met um a few comic book animators, people who drew the comic books. Oh, the uh, comic book artists. Who did yes, you meet? I met them. Ah, I forgot. Any, anyone that stands out? I know his name, but I can't think of it right now. But he did a lot of Marvel comics. Because to me, as a to me as a big nerd, like going to that thing, I, I complained earlier about the price of the actors and stuff. But to me, as a big nerd as well, going to that thing, I'd be just as excited meeting the the comic creators. And you know, I, I've met a bunch of these guys at previous um, cons and comic marts that I've been to. Um, I went to, back when I was younger, I went to some Transformers conventions. This was even, oh, I want to say it's before the Michael Bay movies, but the first Michael Bay movie might have already been out. But Transformers was very much still a niche thing at this point. So I got to meet all of the Transformers comic creators um, back in the day. They've made a bunch of other comics for Marvel and stuff um, Mm, over the years. And a friend of mine actually befriended some of those guys and he hangs out and goes drinking with them. So I've also, you know, had the pleasure of meeting um, some of the major Marvel comics writers and artists. Uh, last time I was in England, actually, I was just at the at the pub with my mate, and he was like, "Oh, well, let's go to this other pub." A few of my mates are down there, and I was like, "Oh yeah, okay." And you know, we're having a drink. He introduces me to the guys. Like, oh yeah, this is my mate Kieran. I'm like, "Oh yeah, very nice to meet you." And he walks off, and he's like, "I'm like, okay, okay." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, you know, that's um Kieran Gillen. Kieran Gillen." forget the why am i blanking on his surname i think kieran gillen right and he wrote all of the iron man comics and the darth vader comics and all of he was writing the star wars comics for marvel at the time and and he walked off to the bathroom and he was like yeah yeah that's that's kieran gillen i was like what (laughs) you're shitting me man you've you've just you've just been like i've been this like having drinks with this guy and you're like yeah this is my mate and you didn't think to mention to me that it's this guy who like i've got stacks of his comics um you know, yeah. the funny thing about that is I met uh, a bunch of guys like that. And what's really interesting is they love for you to reference their work. That's the first thing. They love that. And they're regular people. Like a lot of these guys were like, dare I say it, kind of overweight, balding guys who just love to draw. <laughs> he just he, he was just like any one of us nerds in that pub, honestly mm-hmm. speaking. He was just, you know, we were all just, and and him and my mate, my mate Duff, this is just, they just got into an argument about whether or not Star Wars Episode Eight is shit or not. And that was mostly like, they were <laughs> having a big argument about that. He was quite pro um, Episode Eight, but also he was the writer for the Star Wars comics at the time. So I'm not sure how much that influenced that. Well, you know, it's uh, funny because these guys are so skilled. And watch like a lot of the guys there, they have booths. And they'll draw like caricatures or like some of their favorite characters for you right there if you, if you pay them. And to yeah, watch yeah. these guys work is just amazing. Like oh, the level my, of skill and detail. Yeah, I, I had a couple, which when I moved to Japan, I gave to friends. But I actually had a couple of um, of those from the artists of the various Transformers comics. Um, amongst other things, obviously, they've drawn for a lot of other things over the years. But I had a couple of those myself and again the economy at the time i gave them i think less than 10 pounds less than 20 dollars and they drew and signed these pictures for me and absolutely fantastic watching them work well it's so funny right because you also get like a lot of entrepreneur people because uh comic-con as you guys know it's not just for like the comics it's also for people to do cosplay 
and dress up as their favorite character. So you get a, a wide, diverse array of people going out there and expressing themselves. And that's like the most beautiful thing about it. I would have came in costume myself, but I was there in a business professional capacity. So it's kind of hard to hand out business cards dressed like Blade, mm. in my opinion, and spend days. I'm like, I'm not going to do it because I was there going behind stage in the business capacity. It did my heart well to see like even gay men dressing up as women and just walking around. Like I took yeah. pictures with a few of them. I'm like, man, you killing it, bro. You the Scarlet Witch and you're a killing it. I saw him walking towards me as a black guy, walking with another like intimidating black guy, Alex. And we just stopped. I looked at him. I'm like, hey, you killing it, bro. <laughs> like, keep doing your thing. And it just made him happy. He just kept on saying, thank you, man. That made I me saw your photo of, I saw your photo of that on Instagram. And yeah, that was, a, it was the, the costume was good, right? Oh, man, he killed it. Like, yo, he killed yeah. it. And the swag and the walk. I was like, man, you're killing it, bro. Keep doing it. I've never been to the the, to- the Comic-Con, but I have been to the Tokyo Game Show a few, a few times. And it's very much the same thing there, down to the cosplayers, the expression, the entrepreneurs. The, it, it's a very, very similar um, similar event all around, I think. A lot of those booths are guys putting their own money out for booths mm-hmm. in Comic-Con. And this one uh, artist, I want to give it a shout out. I actually got an interview with her. Her name is uh, Misha Mock. Mm-hmm. Look at her on Instagram. She got like over 50,000 followers on Instagram. Please follow her. But what she did was she made her own character, did the marketing on Instagram, and then goes around to Comic-Con selling her own intellectual property. And for me, that was so damn inspiring because she'll make all, every element of her costume is handmade. She'll do the mask, the modes, because she has a bunch of wolf masks. She'll make the, the mask for the wolves, the fur. Mm-hmm. She does everything. And then... She has her own character, comic book character, and she sells pictures of that at Comic-Con. And this is a story that happened to her. She lost all of her animated pictures in customs coming to Japan. But that didn't stop her. What happened was she went there in cosplay at her booth the first day at Comic-Con, went to the Marvel animator. He's like, hey, can you draw me? He was like, sure, no problem. Pay for that animator or that artist to draw her. She uh-huh. took that, went, got copies of it, and started selling those the next day. I'm like, yo, your grind is impeccable. And that's like a lot of the people you see at Comic-Con just out there grinding it on that Bon Jovi, winging a prayer, living a dream. Uh-huh. And I can't uh-huh. do nothing but say, yo, this is the best experience ever to see you guys out here working it and making money. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. It's great seeing... And I mentioned the Tokyo Game Show. It's very much the same thing when you see the indie developers when it's just one or two guys and they're just there with their game and they've paid a booth. They've paid for a booth. They've got a game and a dream. And, you know, it's great seeing these people at these events who are just there to to get into the industry, to get involved in it and to do something they love rather than just there for the cold, hard cash. You know, it, it starts with the love, right? Like I said, you raise the machine till you become the machine, but the love mm-hmm. and the desire that these people have to push their own product and to be a part of, like, the comics they love and to cosplay and portray those characters and just to be free, to express themselves. And without judgment, without worrying that somebody's going to come across and be like, oh, oh, my God, gay guy, why are you dressed up like... You know, it was great. It was one of the greatest experiences, I can say, of me living in Japan. Especially once you get to the people who are in their 30s and up, like, let's not forget where we're coming from. You know, Mm. I say now all the time, like, I'm a nerd. You get me on here on your podcast to be a nerd. 
I didn't grow up being proud of being a nerd. That was something you would get the shit kicked out of you for. True story. That was something to be ashamed of and to hide away. Like I would always present as a normal guy at work and in the pub and all the times. And, you know, I would have times I'd bring friends from work back to my place and they'd walk into my room and just go, oh my God, you're a nerd. Like, I remember one friend walked in and just started laughing and she just went, oh my God, you're a nerd because I had all my nerd shit up on the shelves. You know, I had my figures and statues and my comics up there. And my, <laughs> my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much like, very much like Bradley's got in his, I had that very much, that kind of setup in England because I had more space for it. I don't really have it in Japan because I don't have that amount of space to have that amount of stuff, but I had that kind of setup and, and it wasn't something that you could just be out and proud about in those days so you know exactly so these comic cons these comic mods these conventions and gatherings these were times when we could be amongst our people and Mm. be honest about who we were and not actually kind of feel like we had to be ashamed or hide away from who we we are and you saw that in full display and it's great yeah i love it i still love seeing it even though it's mainstream now i still love seeing it well, it should be mainstream, right? Because like that's the whole thing where you get like backhanded compliments about stuff like, oh, it's good to see nerds being accepted. Like they always should have been accepted, right? It's the same thing with like gay marriage. They act like it's a, a give. Like you should be happy that you're getting treated like humans. Hey, man, aren't you lucky now you can get I'm like, you don't get credit for being like civil and being not an asshole. Exactly. It's also why for me, like I try my best. I mean, I'm, I'm a human. I'm not perfect. I, I try right. my best. I try my best never to be a gatekeeper. And I try my best never to be one of those like I was here before it was cool because mm. I benefit from this being cool. I get to just be me in public all the fucking time now because I don't have to be like, oh shit, this is gonna like get me derided because I go and watch Marvel or whatever. Like, I don't need to do that really these days. Like I can just be myself now. So I'm not like I was here before it was cool. And I don't want to gatekeep. I want this to be mainstream. I want people to look at my world and say, like, yeah, it's fine. That's fine. You do that. It's a difference between, like, being a gatekeeper and kind of a protector. And I say this about me and hip-hop and Mm. the genre of hip-hop I did. Mm. It means more to me because I had to fight for credibility when I was doing it. And same thing with the nerd culture. I see a lot of uh, protectionism with this nerd yes. culture. And that's because a lot of people don't know the struggle nerds had to be accepted and to be like cool. Like all the time they got their ass kicked when being smart was looked as pejorative. All the mm-hmm. stereotypes you saw growing up in 90s TV where the nerd had to be lame and getting his ass kicked and swirlies and wedgies. And that was the guy you dogged out. Y'all didn't see that. But like my generation took that hit for you guys. So it means more to us. When we see it, it's like, dope. you don't get it. You can just walk into here and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course this is cool. And for us, it's like, okay, I'm glad you got it. I'm glad you're right. here. But know the struggle. Know the history. And that's my whole thing about, like, my protectionism with blackness and hip-hop, too. It's like, okay, guys, I'm glad you can go out here and express yourself. I'm happy for you. I'm going to champion you. However, respect this shit. Respect it. Don't come in here and take it for granted because it can't be taken away. Lots to unpack in what you've just said, actually. Um, <laughs> so one thing is obviously, you know, being a cisgender white male, as so many nerds are, it's kind of, 
when you tell this story, they're like, no, don't you try to get on that like like you had the same struggle as like a gay guy in the closet in the 80s or no, but on the Venn the diagram there's some overlap, right? I mean, it's yeah, I mean, I, like I'm saying, like I couldn't be myself. And it is the same story that I would be telling if I'd been a gay guy in the 80s. Like it's like I couldn't be myself. That is the story. So just the fact that you're, you know, whatever, like a, a cisgender white male. It's it kind of people use that to undercut the fact that like being a nerd was not something you would do in open mm-hmm. in the open or not something you would want to do in the open if you wanted to have any kind of social credibility, which me as being someone that likes being social, likes having friends. I enjoy having social credibility. So I, it was a part of me that I kept very closely guarded unless I was amongst my people. It was social kryptonite. That's a good thing to point out. It was social kryptonite to be out here on this nerd shit. It was yeah. like, they were like, Mm-mm, no. And like you said, we painted the picture of the isolated nerd in media and all growing throughout the 80s and the 90s. We painted this picture of like, oh, there go the weirdo over there in the corner by himself. But nobody asked the question, did that weirdo really want to be alone? Or was that us shunning him, right? Like, that happened a lot. It, the fandom and the community and the kind of stuff that we're talking about today, I really want to go into like a lot of detail on, like a lot, lot. So I'm going to do a whole episode of something at some point on that. Um, uh, and the kind of friendships and bonds that you build, because as you rightly said, that man in the corner doesn't necessarily want to be alone. He just doesn't know how to hide it as well as I knew mm-hmm. how to. Like, I could hide it. I went to work. I put my suit on. I also had other interests that I could put out there. And I knew, I knew which, I knew when to draw the line, which ones to talk about to which people. That was me um, growing up in the situation I grew up. I never really fit in with those guys, but it's so funny how the people you don't even like, you try to get credibility from and validation from them because that's your group. Right. But Mm -hmm. I always made it a point to consciously like spend some of the cashier I got that I earned try to drag somebody else up into my social circle. I would always bring up my super nerdy friends. Like I'd try and like get them to come out now and again yeah. with my, what we used to call normal friends. Mm-hmm. I'd try and get like the, some of the nerdy friends that were able to sort of know where to draw a line and try to, I would always try to what we would call, like you just said, pulling people up. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's fucked up that that was pulling people up really. Cause you know, they were already equal, but th- that's, that's human nature. It shouldn't be a thing, but like circles exist. Like sometimes people don't mesh and I do this intentionally in Japan. Like some of my circles don't cross over. Like my mm. acting friends, I don't introduce them to some of my people I teach English with. Cause like, I know it ain't going to mesh. Like, why would I even introduce you guys? It's going to be conflict. Like, why would I do right. that? Like right. even my uh, far right friends, <laughs> like I'm not going to introduce <laughs> them. Like that's just inviting everybody's not made to mix but it's there's sometimes where you know like okay this person's kind of got an unfair shape they could be a social butterfly but right now they're still in the caliper phase like they just need to be introduced to other things right right and like you say it's about that kind of social credit as well and sometimes all a person needs is to be dropped into the right environment mm-hmm. and, and that is just and i would give that a try myself a lot sometimes i think well in in the right environment if this person's kind of taken out of this and just put here like i think they can probably you know i think they'll swim not sink and you know what a, a good environment is to come out comic-con oh yeah so thank god for comic-con being that environment because i made friends with a lot of people i probably would never met in japan but because they was open and out and they had that platform to express themselves now we friends 
So shout out to Comic-Con. And I'm going to end it right there. That's the Common House Podcast. Thank you to my guest, Daniel Brandon. Tell the folks where to find you. Okay, you can find me on Spotify, Anchor, um, Apple Podcasts, and there's a CastBox I'm on. I'm on a few of those with Diverse Destructions. That's my own podcast that I mostly do by myself. I've got a couple of upcoming guest spots with the holidays approaching. I'm going to have a bit more time for editing, I hope. So I'm going to have a few guests on through the holiday season. Uh, You can also find me on Instagram at Diverse Distractions. Also, you can find me on my personal Instagram at Anglo Convoy. And on that one, I also share pictures of bead art, which is something else I quite enjoy doing. I recently made a fairly sizable one of my... Diverse distractions yeah, logo. Kind of huge. Like, oh. Yeah, yeah. That's that's um it was too big. So it's now being used as a placemat for my dinner plates. Um that's another, podcast. That's another <laughs> podcast. How the hell did you get into BR? Like who decides like, you know what? Middle age man, bead art. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I actually it's a real simple story. It was like you know, I, as I told you earlier, I think, um, I, as I work, oh, yeah, I mentioned it with the vaccine. I work with children. They were doing simple bead art. I thought, oh, that looks kind of interesting. I got to upstage these kids. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> it. Like, goddamn three-year-olds trying to show me up. No, I, you know, it was the pandemic. I had a lot of time on my hands. I, I made a couple of cute looking little Pokemon. Then I started looking at bead art stuff that other people were doing <laughs> on Instagram. And I was like, oh, shit, you can do some real cool stuff. So... I started putting in the time. And there you go, guys. <laughs> anyway, that's where you can find me. I do have a Twitter. It is now largely defunct. I am probably going to delete it. Get um, off, guys. Get off Twitter. Very shortly. Get off, guys. Uh, it's time. Get off. Yeah, um, only reason I even keep it is so I can watch the watch it burn at the moment because that's so endlessly entertaining. But yeah, Definitely you won't find fire. me. You won't find me active on there. Instagram's a place to go or Diverse Distractions. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure. There you go.